Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. I just want to start by sharing my excitement that my novel, An Ocean Between Them, is now available to order. You can sign up on my email list to obviously get good grief notifications, but also notices of readings, events, and everything that has to do with the book. The first chapter is available on my website, weatheringgrief.com, and if you sign up on my mailing list, I'll send you the second chapter. I can't wait to find out how people respond to the book. I've already learned a lot from my endorsers who've read it and the early readers. Uh, peop- every uh, every person reads a different book I've, I've figured out. So I'm really excited to interact with r- readers about it. Today I'm welcome- welcoming Eloa Arthur. Eloa is the founder and executive director of Going With Grace, an end-of-life organization that exists to support people as they answer the question, "Must what must I do to be at peace with myself so I might, might live presently and die peacefully? As a death doula, attorney, and professor, the perspective Elua has gained from her unique 15-year career allows her to help her clients and audiences focus on the practical and emotional needs while contemplating the end of life. She's created and facilitated dozens of unique workshops to explore topics in end-of-life planning and inspired living. Going with Grace also trains people interested in providing end-of-life support services in both professional and personal settings. Elua is a thought leader in the field, tirelessly committed to bringing awareness to death and dying, and consequently increasing joy in life and living. Welcome, Elua. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, that um, that mission statement of yours, um, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die peacefully, so resonates for me. That it's so connected for me, and um, I think maybe we share that in common. The oh, living presently. Tell me how. Uh, well, the living, pre- for me, facing death, uh, invited me to live more presently. They're very connected yeah. for me. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, so having that as part of that, that your work in end of life is also very much about inviting um, joyful life uh, really resonated for me. Beautiful. I find that one of the major benefits of contemplating death, particularly when we're living and healthy, is that we can find ways to re-engage with living itself uh, if we choose that. And the other option is like hopelessness and despair and sadness and heaviness. But the other side of that is joy and connection and beauty and authenticity. You know, I have to say here that the um, original... Uh, excitement I felt at finding you was because of what I 
felt to be an extremely joyful presence in you. It sort of felt as if you embodied what you were saying, that that could be a joyful time. And um, that was very inviting for me. Well, thanks, Cheryl. I mean, (laughs) I have a hard time understanding um, how to not re-engage with life when I think that any minute could be my last. I find a lot of joy in, like, the blue of these cups that I'm sitting there looking at, for instance, because I'm like, wow, they're so pretty. Because the (laughs) the juicy part about living is that we get to experience the senses and we get to be here and engage with other people and use my hands and my eyes and my ears and all the senses that I currently have access to. And that's really exciting for me. It, It reminds me that I'm alive by thinking about my death. Yes, I've been engaging with this little uh, phone app called We Croak that that throws up, I don't know if you've seen it, five quotes a day that have to do with death. And it's very lively uh, engaging with that, being being reminded that way. So that's that's along the lines of what you're talking about. But um, I know that that's, you know, given that this is a, a show about the way that our our losses and difficulties in in life often lead to our life's passions and to our transformations. I know that uh, this was not always where you were, that um, I I thought we really had to talk some about how you got to this life work and the kind of bumps in the road along the way to that, um, because the thing that stood out to me the most about it, and then I'll let you just talk about it, is that um, you started kind of from a place of maybe ignoring yourself some, doing what was expected a little more, and having that lead to a very dull life and yeah. um, and, a, and a real depression and, and lack of engagement. And I think that's important to to share with listeners, you know, that that's what, got you here. Uh, that seems Absolutely. like a very important experience. I find it so interesting. And somebody recently mentioned the other day uh, that death work brought me back to life um, yeah. because I had been living a somewhat dull life. I mean, from the outside, I think it looked pretty shiny because I was practicing law and it was the good kind where I was working at legal aid and working in justice and um, poverty law, and I was doing work that otherwise, you know, would fill a person up and feel like they had a life of purpose. Uh, and I would take all these trips all the time, international trips. I was traveling a lot. I lived in a great apartment. I was riding my bike all the time and going to the beach, but something wasn't really connecting with me. And I'd often question that for myself. Like, every, I have the things that most people say they want. Why am I feeling so empty? Mm-hmm. Um and it all culminated in a pretty deep depression that I'd say was probably mid-grade for about three or four years and then got pretty acute uh, for about nine months where I'd wake up in tears every day for at least six months, just Ugh. miserable and unhappy. And um, I don't like to think that people are broken necessarily, but something felt like it was broken inside of me because I'd known myself previously as somebody who could access her emotions. But during that time, I felt much of nothing. Everything was gray and bleak and, and mm, sad isn't quite it. More like hopeless. Uh, mm. 
Yes. Like it was a pretty tough time in my life. Uh, and I took a medical leave of absence from work for mental health. And, you know, at the time, there was a feeling that I should have had some shame around it because mental health is something that I think culturally we don't do very well. Um, I was, I'd been pretending that everything was fine for so long, but yet got to the point where it was totally out of control and I had to take this leave of absence. And when I did, it created space for me to dig into it. Um, I thought that the depression would worsen because I didn't have anything that I have to do anymore. Um, and it did for a little bit. And then through the love of a good friend who had me over in her house in Colorado for a few weeks while she took care of me and created space for me just to do whatever I needed to do, which was mostly cry and sit around and wonder why I didn't have the life that I thought I wanted, I was able to find ways to start connecting with myself again. And that happened largely through meditation. Um, so... Through that, I decided I wanted to go to Cuba, where um, I'd been thinking about for a few days and seen a guy, a Greenpeace worker that had this bag that said Cuba Tears Fair on it, who Cuba is waiting. So I went to Cuba, and there I met a woman on a bus, a German woman, who had uterine cancer, and she was traveling to see the top six places in the world she wanted to see before she died, and Cuba was one of them. And we started talking about her illness and uh, living with disease, and naturally, we started talking about dying. I say naturally because for me now, it's such a natural progression. Yet at the time, she was living with this illness, and I had also been living with illness. And for both of us, if untreated and unchecked, they could be terminal. Um, and so death was something that had started to float around my mind, but I'd never really seriously considered my own mortality. Yet I was sitting with this woman who had the serious illness and we were talking about her mortality. So naturally I started mm. thinking about mine, looked around the bus, thought, gosh, everybody on this bus is going to die one day. I looked outside, everybody else is going to die one day. How come this is the very first conversation I'm having about mortality? <laughs> and I was, yeah. I was 34. It surprised me. Um, I'd known people that had died. I, I hadn't had anybody close to me yet die, but my friends, a uh, couple friends' parents, I'd known people that had been grieving. You know, it wasn't something that was entirely missing, but the, the crux of the conversation about my death was missing. And right. so in that bus ride, I decided that I wanted to work to prepare people for death. came very easily as clear as day. And um, I've been doing it ever since. You know, what stands out so much is the difference between, um, I've talked about this a lot on the show, the difference between thinking through what you believe is right to do and then doing it versus following some inner lead. And uh, to me, it feels as if when you're brought to your knees, like for you, depression, for me, I think my, my wife's illness and death brought me to my knees, you know. Um, then I then I, start, I started learning to follow kind of a more inner wisdom, I guess. Uh, just follow myself, in a sense, what, what my impulses actually were. Like you're talking about um, a perfectly... Uh, wonderful career as an attorney doing very meaningful work, but it wasn't your work in a way. Right. Uh, it sounds as if it took the depression to realize what your work was. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I really resonate with what you said. I remember reading a quote somewhere around that time, and I'm going to mess up the quote, but something along the lines of that when our heart breaks, that's where the light can get in. It's through the cracks. I think it's Rumi. Yeah, um, it's a Leonard I, Cohen I line. I know that line well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hung yeah, on to yeah. that one like with all my might. <laughs> yes. Well, and there, there's a kind of, I, I feel as if there's a kind of, for me, there was a kind of nothing to lose quality. Like I, yeah. I, I'd, I'd faced up to the hardest thing in a way. And so it became easier to risk not doing what I thought I ought to do. I, I yeah. guess that's part of it too. So now you have this, now you have this calling, but, but you're trained in the law, which I, I realize is very relevant to what, you know, it's still a part of what you do now in a very different way. But, uh, I'm, I imagine there must've been a moment where you said, well, now what do I do? Yeah. (laughs) They still happen today. (laughs) 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 <laughs> they're still very present for sure at the time i was so i was so excited to a be excited about something because i hadn't experienced excitement in years prior and b also so unaware of what death and dying look like in this country that i just soaked everything up i i thought that i was going to become a therapist i thought i was going to be a psychologist in death and spirituality so i applied to a bunch of programs and i got in but it wasn't like a strong yes within you know it was kind of like a meh and i felt meh (laughs) about things for far too long that i just decided to wait and i met a guy on a bus another bus someplace else another german and we ended up traveling together for about a year and a half and during that time I read everything I could get my hands on when I was in countries with uh, relationships with death or like hospices, hospices, I go there to learn. I back here at home, I got an insurance license. I got a job at a hospice agency briefly. I just, I start to learn as much as I could about how we do it because I, well, I didn't have any personal experience myself. And also, I was so fueled by purpose and passion. I knew that something was off, but I couldn't figure out exactly what it was. So I thought, if I learn everything, maybe I'll see how I can contribute somehow. Somewhere in the middle of that time, my brother-in-law um, got diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And he was 43 at the time he was diagnosed. And uh, about four months later, after his diagnosis, he was terminal. And there was nothing more that they could do to treat him. And so I packed up my bags and went to New York where he, my sister, and my niece were and spent the next two months with my, with that family, um, supporting them, doing all the things that I thought necessary to do to make it a little easier on them. And I was present for his death and then in the days afterward, helping my sister plan funeral and then trying to find like the quick and easy way to wrap up the affairs of his life. And I couldn't find anything. I remember sitting on the couch, really frustrated, trying to figure out how to transfer a title of his car because he wanted to give it to his nephew. 
And I could not figure out how to do it. Like, I would read the words, but they weren't making sense. And I was grieving and tired. And I was looking at my sister sitting on the edge of the couch, literally staring out the window, realizing there was no way she was going to be able to do it herself right now. And I was sad and I was frustrated. And I kept in my head thinking, where are the people that are supposed to know all of these things? Like, if there was somebody that I could call, we'd pay them whatever we could. I just wanted to ask the questions and have somebody guide me. Um, somebody let me know that I'm doing it okay or somebody say, hey, try this instead. And so that's what made me see really how I could be most useful. Um, so that's how I found it going with Grace is to fill that need of people needing like professional support, somebody to say, hey, here's a big picture. Here's how you can do what it is that you're trying to do um, after death, but also trying to figure out how to get those things done before death so that it's much easier on people through the grieving process. Is that clear? Very clear. And the thing that stands out is I know death doulas. I've interviewed death doulas, which is very powerful. I've interviewed people that uh, deal with the paperwork and the legal aspects. Um but I don't know of anyone else who kind of puts that all together, that it's all part of the same picture. And I find that powerful, that um, it's sort of, uh, they're all aspects of, of coming to a sense of peace with things and then going through death and grief um, with those things in place. There's something a little bit, uh, I guess I would say seamless about it, um, mm-hmm. complete maybe. Mm-hmm. Was that part I, of your intention? Um, I can't say at the outset that it was, but as the work has developed, I see how useful it is. There were, as I learned these different industries, and I also got a certificate in death midwifery, I started seeing how uh, the, the particular sides don't talk to each other very well. And was wondering what I could do about that. And I thought, well, if I learn it all, then I can be the one-stop answer for whatever the question might be. I might not be able to write an insurance policy, but I can understand how to get paid and what the things might be that stop people from getting paid. So that when the family is trying to file a claim, I can support them in filing the claim. And similarly, when, you know, after a long illness, maybe there's a lot of medication in the home or hospital beds that need to go back. Well, where are the places to do that? Rather than the family getting on the computer themselves and trying to look that up, I can support them with it. You know, the, the, my intention is to do it as holistically as possible because through Peter's death, I saw how fractured the system was and how there was one person that dealt with medical, one person that dealt with this, one person that dealt with that, but nobody to just do it all. Um, yes, yeah. yes. Well, that that resonates just having been in grief in my life, uh, you know, even even if I'm usually pretty on top of things. Uh, boy, the more people you have to deal with, the harder. Uh, it's it's yeah. a, it can get very overstimulating and overwhelming. So I really like that idea. It's time for our first break, but let when we come back, let's talk about specifically the kinds of things that going with grace does and um, kind of how that lands with people, how people find you, you know what what inspires them to to decide to do that kind of work and then how that uh, unfolds. 
And listeners, while we're on our break, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Uh, Please interact with my social media and let me know what you think of the shows. That's very important. And uh, as I said earlier, if you sign up on my email list, you'll find out about Good Grief upcoming stuff and about my book. And to find Alua Arthur, you can go to goingwithgrace.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Elua Arthur about her career supporting people to prepare for their end of life through her organization, Going With Grace, and then also uh, supporting families once someone has died. And uh, before the break, Elua, we were talking about um, getting a little more specifically into what you do at Going uh, going with grace with the um, the backdrop that <laughs> your services are pretty complete from my view what you what what you offer as you said um, you could 
contribute to the answer to pretty much any question about this process we're talking about. Would you like to just uh, give people sort of an overview of what you do at Going With Grace? Um, in three different areas. When people are still healthy and they've started thinking about the fact that one day they're going to die, I help them create a complete, thorough end-of-life plan. That covers some of the stuff that we know we should do anyway, like what are the stuff that's going in a will. I don't help people create wills, but we talk about their possessions and how they're being distributed. We also talk about medical decision-making, desires for life support, how the body's going to be cared for, um, what we want done with our bodies after we're done with them. Um, funeral services, arrangements, stuff of that sort, dependent and pet care. And we also discuss biographical information and important information and documents, trying to nail down the location of those. We also go through all their accounts and passwords, finances. Are there beneficiaries on the life insurance policies? Who are those beneficiaries? You know, where are your retirement accounts? We go through it all to make it pretty Mm. simple. And all that goes into an, uh, an end-of-life planning tool, a document that I've created when it's signed in the presence of two witnesses in most states becomes a legally binding document. So that's the service I offer when people are still healthy and starting to think about their death because once they die, that document really supports families and wrapping up their affairs. Uh, when people are nearing the end of life and they see the end in sight or they know what it is that they're dying from, as I put it, um, I support families in, and the individual in figuring out what would be the most peaceful death for them. And you know that the answer is very unique for different people. For some people, it's about making sure that the practical things are in order. Like, I want to make sure my wife knows how to run the household because I've paid all the bills for 30 years, and now she's not going to know how to do it. So I support there. Uh, that's just one example. Or for some people, it's healing their relationships. Um, for others, it's still some experiences that they want to have, and to the extent that they're still capable, given physical limitations, I'll support them in that. And for others, it's questions about the meaning of life and the meaning that their life has had or ideas or thoughts about the afterlife. So that's my work around when people are um, know what is going to end their lives, typically. And then after So I, I could... I could imagine that in that process, that would be a really intimate process because I know I've, I did, you know, I've done a lot of different uh, ways to get at those questions, and it's always a very deep process of of really thinking about what I need, want, and desire, and so I would imagine that's a very emotional and long conversation to be having with people. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not something that's done in like a two-hour consultation, like my end-of-life planning sessions are, but typically over the course of a few weeks or months, if we've got it, uh, one time I had an hour-long phone call with a gentleman, which was not ideal. He did end up dying four days later, um, but so I'm grateful that at least we got that hour so we could talk through some of the things that were going to be necessary for him. Yeah. Right. It can be, yeah. I, yesterday I was chatting with a young woman who who wondered whether or not it's hard for people to open up. And that's not something that I've truly encountered. Um, once or twice, you know, it takes a little bit of warm up, but I think oftentimes people are very hungry to share and to discuss what's going on to the extent that they have some awareness. Um, and particularly with somebody who is compassionate and willing to go there with them. 
Um, and so I, it hasn't been so challenging for people to open up and to start having those conversations with me if they're not having them with other people in their lives. Well, it also seems a bit, uh, I guess, a bit self-selected. Like, uh, I know people yeah. that won't go near any end of life anything. Even friends of mine, they, they you know... They obviously don't listen to my show, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, you know, if someone's going to come to you, there's there's a provisional willingness, I would imagine, because of what it is you do. Uh, yeah, it, it's hard to point. picture that someone. Often I'm hired would, by the family, though, and not the individual, which can sometimes be a little tricky. I I get that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that that um, they may not entirely have the person on board at first. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. That can get tricky. That uh, that seems odd. That families my work would... is gets tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, do, do, is that? I know this is a sideline on what we're talking about, but. Uh, I wonder. Like, for instance, I've recommended to people who are trying to you know, their parent is failing and they're in therapy with me and they can't get their parent to do blank. <laughs> I'll say, well, tell them you need it. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Is that the kind of frame that families come from? Or is it more, do you find that sometimes families are kind of forcing it against the person's desire or wishes? I think it's a little bit of both. Like family dynamics play a huge role in this. Um, and so sometimes people are trying to be soft and tender around it, and other times people want to be confrontive. Um, I worked with a family recently where dad had been notoriously tight-lipped his entire life and then dropped a bombshell about other children nearing the end of his life, and mm-hmm. but didn't want to talk about anything else. Um, and so in that case, I had to do my best to finesse to find out about his everything else, like if how he felt about his treatment, if he wanted to continue it, if he wanted to be at home, how he felt about his caregivers, because he wasn't otherwise very, very, very tight-lipped. So, uh-huh. yeah, it really depends. Complicated, yeah. And, Complicated. and um, you know, I, there's there are so many things that would fall under the heading. Um, you don't seem to have... For me, in myself, I'm much better in the emotional and spiritual realms. The financial realm is a little bit more difficult for me, and the legal realm is a little bit more difficult for me. Um, I don't think I'm unusual as a therapist in that, (laughs) I've noticed. Mm -hmm. But in any case, um, you seem it seems to be very fluid, like you could have one conversation and all these different aspects might come up. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I think they do all come up. Yeah, I really only, I mean, I only go where my clients are willing to go. Um, sure. But, you know, something like, sometimes the practical leads to the emotional slash spiritual, and other times it's the other way around. Um for instance, when talking with somebody about their plans for their body after their death, and they'll say, oh, gosh, I really don't want to be cremated. I can't think of myself as burning. Uh, that, to me, suggests that there's some belief that the body and the self are one for that person. And oh, so that's it. Yeah. Go down that road. 
That one's familiar because uh, I was just telling my wife last week that I was very intrigued by um, green burial. And there is a green burial ceremony for people who, or I'm sorry, cemetery uh, for people who don't know where you're you're buried without embalming and no casket and, and the land is maintained in its natural state afterwards. So I was saying, oh, that really intrigues me. Now, we've talked before about not believing it's important where the body is and all that, you know, so I figured we were on the same page. And this place happens to be in Marin County near us. And uh, she said, I'm never being buried in Marin County. (laughs) So obviously, she's got some feeling that's maybe not entirely rational for her, but um, she just wouldn't want her body to be there. I found that really interesting. That is interesting. Do you figure out why? It's It's a very, very white place. And she okay. is Hispanic. I think that's a piece of it. Um, it's just not it's not a resonant place for her in some ways. Uh, I, mm-hmm. That's all I can figure out. But why she would care whether her body was there or not when she's no longer in it, <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mm-hmm. awaits a follow-up conversation, but it was interesting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's that type of statement. That comes up sometimes, and I'm like, oh, well, there's more to explore here, so let's go and see what we find. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And, and you know, in marriages, the conversations are very long. <laughs> yeah, but, that's but a sweet way to put it. Yeah, and it's, and it's an example of what you're talking about, that you can be talking about something. For me, I was just talking about, you know, um, wanting a, a, a green type of way for my body to be dealt with but she was talking about something else uh mm-hmm. so That's one can way. one can spur the other in in interesting ways yes yes absolutely which is part of the juicy part of my work is that some people might shy away from the emotional and spiritual yet will drop little crumbs that suggest that there's something going on beneath the surface um or vice versa by people that are totally averse to organizing or getting anything written down, yet, you know, feel some hesitation about leaving their adult children to deal with their knickknacks, you know? Definitely. Well, and, and all that stuff is, uh, since we're, we've both in the last few years dealt with our mothers, uh, our mothers both died after our fathers, and so... We're, our house is now much fuller. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, we're still sorting out lots of things. Um, stuff. Another whole part of it, for sure. Just yeah, the stuff. Absolutely. Which is part of what I really enjoy about my, my work is that I think sometimes it allows people to kind of zoom out and say, wait, hold on a minute. I have a whole lot of this one particular thing. If this thing had been important to me in my living, I'd want somebody to enjoy it perhaps in my dying. But if it's not important in my living, then I got to figure out what I want done with it so that the people (laughs) that are left in my life don't have to. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? We know about getting a will, but a lot of times people think that the will handles the big things like cars and money and bank accounts and businesses, art etc. Um, Timeshares, but we don't think about the smaller things that 
might not have any meaning to somebody like our socks. Well, and yes, yes. Um, An example that comes to my mind is my mother's uh, doctoral, she got an honorary doctorate, and she kept Mm. the sash. So, I mean, that's very important in her life story, but I don't need to have it, you know, Um, those kind of things or pictures with no person in them, that sort of stuff. So, so you help people sort through that level of things too. I do. I'll support family members after a death on that level. Um, That's that's a bit of a process and can be a little uh, tedious, but I think also creates a lot of room for, digging into grief in some way. And so it's not something like the rush, at least when going through possessions. But after a death, I do support family members in, you know, going through the details of their loved one's life and trying to figure out how to best deal with them, like their accounts, um, their possessions, their leftover medical things, um, stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, I, di- I did notice in one of your, I guess it was an interview where you were talking about the bangles you wear and, you know, uh, um, kind of setting it out that your sisters would each have some. And that happened with my mother-in-law, too. She also wore lots oh. of bangles. Um, so um, that kind of thing, when something has meaning and it might be hard for the people left to, to distribute them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then it that's so helpful if you have some sense of what the person themselves would have wanted, isn't it? Absolutely, because I find that those are the things that cause. Um, I'm trying not to use the word grief because I don't want to make a pun, and also because it's not quite accurate. But those are the things that cause some heartache. Ah, there's the word around it. Because there's already such a difficult time emotionally. There's already tremendous grief. We don't also want to be arguing over items that have sentimental value. It just increases. I mean, emotions already run so high, we're already also raw, that then to fight about photographs and angles and things like that, just it don't feel so good. Yeah. Well, and and as uh, you know, a grief counselor um, in that in that wing of this story here, sometimes I believe I do believe people fight over those things because uh, the grief they're experiencing is too painful. Totally. Um, so it can get distracted that way. So we kind of got ahead of ourselves um, oh. in the sense that we were talking about how you help someone. Uh, kind of take care of the business of their life that you had three parts of your business I I have a feeling the next one is preparing to actually die as opposed to dealing with the business of dying and the feelings of dying would that be correct sort of the doula part of your work so we have a break now and let's come back and talk about that part of of your work after the second break okay All right. Uh, Listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com to find me or the Good Grief host page. And to find Elua Arthur, you can go to goingwithgrace.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. 
Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Elua Arthur, the the founder and um, primary person in her organization, Going With Grace. And before the break, Elua, we were just beginning to talk about the second of the three um service blocks in your organization, which would be, uh, as I understand it, preparing people for the their actual dying as opposed to uh, taking care of the business and emotions about um, knowing that that's coming. Um, and would you would you call that the death doula portion of what you do? Uh, would I that would. be a fair I think I way call to this kind of the death doula portion in a big <laughs> expanded way? But yes, this is more traditional doula work in supporting people to have the type of dying that feels most peaceful for them. Um, that is a lot of times like being present with the family, making sure that being an advocate for the client, for the patient, if they want to be at home, that they're at home rather than in the hospital. That 
you know, say there's flowers that they like or candles or somebody rubbing their feet. Um, there's enough food. There's some sweetness in the air. Mm, yes. Yeah. yeah. And additionally, also, after after death, I work with families to take care of the body at home if they'd like to, like washing the body and dressing it one last time and having a home funeral or a home wake um, before the body is then taken away for burial or cremation. Uh, I. That was extremely meaningful for me when my wife died. Um, didn't feel the need of it when my parents died, but when my wife died, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like not to do that. <laughs> so I I have a very... experience. What's that? I'm so glad you were able to have that experience. I feel lucky because it wasn't something that was so commonly thought of. She died in 1995. Um so it wouldn't have necessarily been, it wouldn't have necessarily occurred to a lot of people. We had very good advice, I guess I would say. So, um, and the other thing, I appreciate that um, the terms death doula, death midwife are um, coming into more common uh, usage and there's more training because it does her death definitely did feel very much like when I gave birth. Uh, it, it was a very similar feeling for me um, of mystery and wonder and um, just wowness, I guess. <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. how to put it, but um, other, other than regular everyday experience. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I find it, I've been present for a couple of births, and I feel sometimes that the energy in the room feels similar at a death, um, while the processes are different and we're looking at two different sides of the coin, there, there feels to be some similarity in, uh, in the, 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 the wowness, as you put it the wellness really truly standing at the threshold of like the greatest miracle and the greatest mystery that exists. There's Mm -hmm. constantly wowed. Yeah. And, and that's something I, of course that doesn't happen for everyone and we could probably have another show on what, (laughs) what allows that or doesn't, or whether it's just complete mystery. I mean, for us, I think it was having, spent 10 years um, talking about approaching and living with death. Like we weren't, we were kind of used to the idea by that point. Uh, I think that was, so I was not just in grief. There were other things too. But what kind of, yeah, I think so too. What, how do people come to be trained to do that work? Uh, Well, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people feel called to work with death. Uh, somebody once said to me, oh, you know, I don't think that you find death work. I think death work finds you. I think that was pretty appropriate. And when a lot of people feel called to do it, then there's like, oh, well, how do I start? Do I just hang out a shingle and start calling myself a death doula? Or do I have to get trained somehow? I got a certificate in death midwifery 
from a delightful woman named Olivia Barron at Sacred, Sacred Crossings, which is located here in Los Angeles, where I am. And my work now doesn't look much like the training that I received, but there are still major elements of that training in it. I feel that most of us will learn what we will from our training programs and then put our stamp on it and then send it out there into the world as our particular offering. Um, I'm finding more and more lately that people want to learn how to do what it is that I do. And so I've created a training program to support people in learning how to support people in preparing for dying across the board, not just the death doula portion of being bedside, but also in the planning of it and looking at the death and the family holistically and trying to figure out how to best be of support to them. That seems very, uh, very meaningful because then you're kind of a part of the whole, you're, you're training people to be part of the whole story. And uh, that, that seems, I can imagine that being very comforting. The people that sort of followed us through beginning, middle and end and, and on into having some intersection with me in grief, uh, that those were very important people for me. Uh, that kind mm-hmm. of saw the whole story uh, unfold. I'm happy to hear that. I'm very happy yeah. to hear that. And I think that's what, you know, I, I believe that that's the way that people feel best held through the process, you know, because even though there is bereavement support through hospice for about a year afterward, very small numbers of people are actually using those services through hospice. And so finding some, you know, through line, the, a consistent constant presence to support through the whole way I think does create a lot more you know I'm I'm really struck that you're there that you're mentioning that I I feel that is um completely unsurprising um I find that people if I'm not already working with them for instance when someone dies in their life um they're probably going to come to see me at about a year Mm. um and that's exactly when those services stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to me, it, as, mm-hmm. as a mental health counselor, um, it's, it's not surprising that people don't make, re- re- you know, make use of that. Because to mm-hmm. go into a group of strangers in early grief is so extremely vulnerable for a lot of people that right. uh, I, I am just not surprised that it doesn't get taken advantage of um, that much but I imagine right. people would later um, yeah. when they're not not as in as private a place about it um, yeah. so maybe maybe that'll extend someday because I think that would help people to have access yeah, to I think so too the, yeah I definitely think so too I think of clients that I've worked with them probably just prior to a death and then, you know, we're working on something, wrapping up something afterward, and we'll get on a call to check in about some practical work. And before we get to anything, of course, I ask how they're doing, but like the real question, not just like, how's your day today? Rather like, yeah. how are you doing? And how many of them often will say, I am completely falling apart today, two, three months out, which to me, I feel so grateful that I can support in that way and that they can discuss it. Um, yeah, because, you know, right after a death when everybody knows that you're supposed to show up and support somehow, but people start falling off after a while, yet the support is still necessary. Um, Absolutely. And you have, you have a doorway because you're also helping people with the practical 
aspects. Um, I was, just because we're about to run out of time, I really wanted to say, you know, you did list on your website a lot of practical aspects that need to be paid attention to after death. And it, um, that is so, so important. I, I was remembering uh, when my dad died and he had been set, he was a minister, he had been set to marry my daughter to, to perform her wedding. And then he died. And so we decided to take his wedding ring and, and sew it into her dress, but we got a little Tiffany's box to put it in. So we went there. My mother picked the box, all this, and we went to pay for it. She took out her American Express card, and it was refused because, because they, American Express had been notified that he died. Um, so, uh, I noticed it said something about that notification process. We had no idea. And of course she was on the account as well, uh, (laughs) but it was completely frozen. You know, just those little things. Um, I, I wanted to emphasize the importance to people because that was such a, uh, shocking and, um, kind of horrific moment, uh, it it was sort of the worst of it to be honest you know um to be to be um especially for my mother she was very uh, a very financially conscious person um so there she was in tiffany's getting her card um refused <laughs> so oh, <laughs> paying attention to that stuff is important right <laughs> yeah um, yeah so, i'm like for me, in fact, I'd come in and say, well, before we close anything, before we notify who are on these accounts, who, what is getting paid out of these accounts? Because a family once, there was one account, one major account, once the bank got notified and went to close the account, that meant that all the auto pays for the gas, the electricity, everything that was paid out of that account for the house also shut down. So people are living in the house, all of a sudden there's no electricity anymore. And it's like, well, us. Exactly. I know. Right. I know that's a a kind of strange place to to start to close our interview, but it just felt so important to me um, because anything that feels out of control when you're up against the out of control of the loss to start out with is especially disturbing. So um, Mm -hmm. whether people use your service or are kind of (laughs) <laughs> learn to learn things, you know, however people know it, those are such valuable things to know just in terms of grief. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. And also there's so much support out there. Um, I want people to really know that there's professional support through that process of it. So reach out because we can get somebody to support you. And I do want to, um, just say to people that I I looked through your services really thoroughly, and I do hope that people will look you up because it just seems like um, um, such a valuable uh, thing that you're doing, and with a great and loving spirit. So I appreciate you for that very much. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks for being with me today. And uh, for those of you out there, please go to Alua Arthur's work at goingwithgrace.com. Next week, I'll have Stephanie Cassatley to talk about her book, Notice of Release, A Daughter's Journey to Forgive Her Mother's Killer. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.